Just before we turn to this portion of scripture that's been read for us in Genesis, let's bow our heads, let's look to God, let's ask him uh, to help us this morning to speak to us. Let's bow and pray. We thank you for that psalm that we've sung. Uh, Lord, we thank you for the beautiful sound that it is to hear uh, the people of God uh, lifting up their voices in praise of the Holy One of Israel. Uh, But Lord, the content of that psalm reminds us that there is nowhere uh, as your people that we can go where your presence is not with us. And so what an encouragement that is for us just now as we come to your word to know that we're not doing this in isolation or by ourselves or simply as a group of people, but the presence of the almighty God is with us. And so we pray uh, that we would know that in these moments and that we would know uh, your voice speaking to us. Uh, Lord, help us to put away all that might hinder our hearing and speak into our lives, O God, to change us. For your namesake. Amen. Excuse me. Okay. A leopard cannot change his spots. A leopard cannot change his spots. English language is a bit strange at times, isn't it? But I think we all know exactly what is meant by that expression. A leopard cannot change his spots. That's a phrase that kind of sums up the view that many in the world have, that deep down, uh, people cannot really change. Isn't that uh, the, the expression? A leopard cannot change his spots. Isn't that the view that so many people have today, that if somebody was a liar uh, in their youth, the chances are the world thinks uh, that that person is untrustworthy all the way through their life, right? Leopard can't change their spots. Or if somebody is cheated in the past, what does the world think? The world thinks, well, that person is, again, in the future, likely a cheat. A leopard cannot change his spots. But what about from a biblical perspective? What about from the vantage point of biblical Christianity? I ask you, can people change? Is deep-rooted, deep-seated transformation, is that possible? Is it? Can people change? Well, as we um, go through these chapters in Genesis just now, I think what we've seen is that at this point in the book, the focus of attention is less on Joseph, and the focus just now is much more on his brother's And we notice that. So the attention is actually on these 11 men who I think we would all agree have less than exemplary past. Isn't that right? These 11 brothers, a bit, not a bit, a lot of a checkered history. And so I want to say this to you, and I really mean it. I think if you're a Christian in here this morning, this chapter of the Bible should be, will be, of immense encouragement to your Christian walk this morning, Genesis 44. Why? Because you are going to see very clearly in Genesis 44 that people can change. You're going to see this morning, by God's grace, transformation is possible. Okay, a leopard can't change its spots. The Holy Spirit can do it for him. There can be change. 
even for the worst of sinners. Now, what we're going to have is a conventional uh, approach, a conventional outline uh, this morning, nothing too clever. So as we work our way through Genesis uh, 44, we're going to look at three aspects of change. Okay, three headings, three aspects of change uh, this morning. So I'm, I'm going to ask you to do what I ask you to do every time. If you've got a copy of the Bible on your phone, tablet, or a physical copy of God's Word, please uh, turn to Genesis 44. If you're visiting or you've forgotten your Bible, we will not look at you in judgment this morning, uh, and we'll try and put uh, some of the verses that we look at and focus on up on the screens, if the screens, of course, behave themselves uh, this week. Okay, so three aspects of change. The first thing that I want us to, to see and recognize and to think about is testing of transformation. Everyone got it? Testing of transformation. Okay, uh, let's get into the, the chapter. Okay, now, uh, what was last week? Yeah, the Queen's Jubilee, wasn't it? So because of this holiday weekend, and then because of the General Assembly and a, bit, a few other things before that, we've had this little break, haven't we, in the life of Joseph. So maybe it is worthwhile <clears throat> of us bringing a couple of things that maybe are, are a little bit blurry, and maybe it's worthwhile just you and I just try to bring them back into focus this morning because we've had a little bit of a break, okay? So maybe there's a couple of things a little bit blurry. One, perhaps we need to bring into focus the overarching storyline of Joseph. Maybe because of the break, that's a little bit blurry. What's going on with Joseph? He's a favored son, isn't he? He's beloved by his father, and he's been sold by his brothers into slavery in Egypt, spending time, first of all, in Potiphar's house, then where? Then in jail. Then by the hand of God, Joseph has risen up to prominence, to this place of prominence where he is the one who's actually handing out grain at a time of famine. And then who appears on the scene? Come on. Who appears on the scene in this time of famine? His brothers come looking for food, unaware, of course, that this leader that they are dealing with is who is this? Their long lost sibling. Okay, so that should be razor sharp. That's not blurry anymore, is it? So into focus, we've got the overarching storyline of Joseph. What's the other thing that we might bring back into focus? That's the more immediate background, don't you think? Because if you were here two, three weeks ago, do you recall what we saw over the course of a couple of weeks? What would you say? You would maybe say to me, uh, yes, that the brothers' consciences have begun to be awoken. Do you remember that? Through crisis and severity and the kindness of God, their consciences have begun to be sparked and awoken. But we could add to that, because isn't it fair to say that Joseph has also begun to test his brothers? Isn't that right? Because 20 years have passed since he set eyes on his brothers. Here they come into his throne room. And what does he want to know? Have they changed in 20 years since they mistreated me? Has anything ha happened here? And what did he do? Can you, can you recall, recall? He sent the brothers up to Canaan to try and get Benjamin. Do you remember that part of it? 
And then what? There was a great banquet. Do you remember? And he tested or began to test their jealousy because he gave Benjamin five times as much food, uh, five times as much as his brother. He began to test them. So all of that is to say, what have we got here in front of us this morning? Well, what you've got in your hands today is a bit like a moment I had 20 years ago uh, when I was a student. Uh, so I was, sit- I wonder if you know this building, but I was sitting in McEwen Hall in Edinburgh, a glorious building. Sounds nice, but I was sitting an exam, okay? So I was at university sitting an exam. But here's me thinking I've knocked it out of the park. <laughs> Because I've done my exam, and I'm sitting there, and I am sitting there thinking, oh, I've done really well there, answered those questions really briefly. I'm looking at the clock, thinking, oh, I've just, I cannot believe it. I've just pa- sailed through that. No worries at all. Sitting, chilling out, looking at everyone hard at work, thinking, oh, look at me, top of the class here. And then there was that sort of predictive, you know where the story, story's going? There's this horrible moment that other people have, but I had where I'm just playing about with stuff, just sitting, chilling out. And then I was, oh, turn over the page and realize, oh no, I've still got two or three questions still to answer. And I felt with that big, felt like an idiot. I really did. Uh, Why mention that? Because do you see what you've got in your hands? This today is the second part of a two-part test. Did you recognize? Yeah, with the banquet. Joseph's begun to sort of prod his brothers. But today, all of it becomes very, very much more pointed. And what's going to happen this morning is he sets up this very particular test to determine, discern whether his brothers have transformed themselves or changed. So what do we want to know? We want to know what is this test, don't we? So maybe we can put it up on the screen, the first few verses, maybe you can look at it. Look down at the start of the chapter if you've got it there. What's the setup of this test? What's mentioned? What do you notice? Straight away, you notice that a cup is mentioned. Does everyone see it? So it would be common, wouldn't it, in the ancient world to have an aristocrat, a ruler with his own special vessel. I think we all knew that, didn't we? But then what, what has to be done with this cup? The steward hides it doesn't it? One of the brothers' bags. And then when the brothers begin their journey, they head out of the city and they're going to go up to Canaan, what does the steward have to do? Do you notice the details? He has to go to, oh, he has to go to the brothers, searches the bags, he finds the cup, and then he brings them back for an audience with Joseph. So does everyone follow? You get the setup, do you? The setup of this test. Now, to use a horrible... Uh, Americanism uh, for a moment, horrible American phrase. Let's just have a sidebar uh, for, for a moment. Okay, just a very brief uh, parenthesis. No American shoot me or have a go at me later on, please. Okay, but let's have a, a parenthesis just for, for a moment because you may have noticed in the text twice, verse 5, verse 15, that the word divination is used. Did you notice that? That's a bit baffling, isn't it? Because divination, we know, was a very ungodly practice, don't we? It was a truly pagan practice where kings and and aristocrats would take their special vessel 
and they would pour liquid onto the soil or the sand and it would form, obviously it would form a pattern and then people would use this pattern to try and predict the future. And maybe we in here are a bit confused because we're wondering, well, why is that mentioned in connection with Joseph? Joseph, this, this godly man, why divination in connection with him? But maybe you see the answer, do you? Do you? I mean, it's just part of the ruse, isn't it? I mean, he, Joseph, is pretending to be to his brothers, this great Egyptian ruler. He wants them to think this, this vessel is incredibly important. So oh, the divination, the, he's not, we're not told he actually does any divination, but it's just part of the sham. So close the sidebar. Back to the story, and I have a question to ask you. There's a lot of stuff covered there. I want to ask you this. Do you this morning appreciate just what Joseph is up to with the cup? Do you see how ingenious it is? Because what Joseph is doing in this chapter is staging a reenactment. Now, do you follow? Do you see what I mean? 20 years have passed since what? The brothers mistreated a favored son, abandoning Joseph and so grieving their father. So do you see what Joseph's doing with the cup and this setup and this plan? He's trying to put his brothers into as close a situation as possible to that original crime. He puts them right in a similar circumstance to see how are they going to react? Have they changed? Let me ask you to do this. Look at verse 17 with me. Let's put it up on the screen. So first of all, whose bag is the cup located in? Is it just put the cup in anyone's bag? No. Benjamin, put it in the favored son's bag. Isn't that interesting? Do you see it? And then despite their protestations, look what Joseph says to the brothers. He says to them, now listen, only the guilty party will be held account. Do you see what he's saying to the brothers? He's saying, you guys can go if you want to, okay? You guys can abandon the favored son here. You can go and grieve your father. You can go scot-free if you want. Do you see, he stages this parallel this reenactment to, to see what are the brothers going to do? Are they going to change? Now, as we bring this into St. Peter's this morning, and as we seek to apply this to our lives, maybe, maybe there is a, a warning that needs to be issued, maybe, uh, maybe I need to say to you, we should not follow suit here. <laughs> Do I need to say that? I don't want anyone finishing with Genesis 44 and finishing with a service this morning going out and think, I think if it's good enough for Joseph, it's good enough for me. You know, I'm going to set up a, a test for my spouse. I'm going to set up a test for my children. Maybe that warning needs to be issued, but much more crucially, let me say this. We need to appreciate that this is indeed how our God works. Now, do you hear that clearly? Though God will never tempt you, God will never entice you into sin. The same God who tested Adam in the garden 
And the God who tested Abraham with Isaac and Mount Moriah, the God who led his own son into the wilderness to be tested by the evil one, that same God today is constantly testing his people. And lest you think, even for a split second this morning, that that sounds cruel or unfair or hard, you must you must focus on the reasoning and the purposes behind it. Because what does the Bible tell you? Why does God test you? Every test is there to produce in your heart perseverance. And what are you learning this morning? That very often you go through testing so that God can reveal to you change. You go through hardship. You go through testing. So God can show you the extent to which he is transforming your life and your character by his precious, matchless grace. When we recognize that, how grateful we should be as Christians that our loving God, our gracious God, he works in ways like this. So there is testing. Second of all, more briefly, I want you to notice with me, if you would please, evidence of transformation. Well, we look at that, the second thing, evidence of transformation. Um, when we are wrestling with a difficult portion of the Bible, now that might be at home, or it might be at church, or the kids, even at Sunday school sometimes, when we're wrestling with a, a difficult portion of the Bible, one thing that can help us is if you and I try to establish what might be the main theme of that portion of Scripture. You can see it. That helps us. We look at a portion of Scripture. What is, what is the main thread, the main thrust of this portion of Scripture? That can help us to understand God's Word. It can. So, as you perhaps, I hope, read this portion of Scripture before you came to church, or, as Will read this portion of Scripture out to you earlier on, what did jump out to you as being potentially the main thread, the main thrust, the main theme of this portion of Scripture? What do you think? Like I, I would say to you that though the testing from Joseph is very, very important, I don't think that's the main theme. I think the main theme of this portion of Scripture, and please get it, is the new noble character that these brothers display. I hope you're hearing that. Are you? that right at the forefront of Genesis chapter 44, running actually all the way through this chapter, is the extent to which these brothers are almost unrecognizable. Like the extent to which that God has actually changed and transformed these men. Now that's a, that's a big thing for me to say, that's the main theme that we have here. Can, can I try and back it up for a moment with some evidence? Will you look at the evidence? So f first of all, I want you to think about their solidarity. They're new. Surprising maybe, solidarity. See, where were we? Where were we in the story? Oh, the tension, man. Because we had left them just outside the city, hadn't we? And Joseph Stewart had gone to these men and they had found the cup. And they are... You know, at that critical moment, and you and I, do you know what we're supposed to be? Well, you are, maybe not me, but you are supposed to be on the edge of your seat right now, okay? Please do not fall off your seat, but you're supposed to be holding your breath, and you're supposed to be wondering, 
Oh, they've been caught. What are these brothers going to do? Which way are they going to go with us? Are they going to repeat their former sins? And what do they do? Can, can we look at it together? Let's put up verse 13. Now, there's two sides to what they do. Look at verse 13. If you've got it on the screen, have a look at it. Skim read it. What's the first thing that they do? They tear their robes. Isn't that interesting? How many times have I said to you, it's like a broken record, how many times in this sermon series have I said to you, it's always about the robes with Joseph. Always about the cloaks. From his very first multicolored cloak all the way through. But does this not strike you? Come on, jog your memories. Think about the initial event, the original crime. They sold their, the favored son into slavery, Joseph. What happens next? They go to their father. They lie to him. They break his heart. And what did we read? There, although they're all gathered together, only Jacob tore his garments Do you see, in the previous episode with the favored son, the brothers, they did not grieve. But you see now what? You see what? You see change, don't you? So that's the first thing. What's the other thing that you see here? The other side to the solidarity. Did you notice what they do? They travel back into the city with Benjamin. Now, you could look at me just now and you could say that is definitely an insignificant detail that they travel back into the city. But think about what we've said in the first point. They don't need to go back. Twice it has been made clear to them, only the guilty party will be held account. Twice they've heard ringing in their ears, brothers, you can go, you can flee. But do you see they're having none of it? Unlike before, where they abandon a favored son Here, they are going to stick by the favorite son, stick by Benjamin so that they might help. Do you see the transformation in these men? Then, second detail of it, consider their new repentance. Because yes, imagine, imagine the scary scene that we've got here where they are now walking back into the city. Oh, I bet they're walking heavy. And they're walking in to face this audience with Joseph. But I want to ask you whether you noticed which of the brothers at this point begins to take the lead and act as a representative. Did, did you pick up on it in the reading? Because you're thinking maybe Benjamin? Or maybe you're thinking Reuben? Because Reuben's the eldest. He's going to be what, the one that's speaking up. But it's not. Who is it? It's Judah. Yeah, friends, that Judah from that incident with Tamar, he's the one speaking up. And what is his attitude? Oh, wow, look at it in verse 16. Let's put it up on the screen. Verse 16, do you see what, on behalf of the brothers, do you notice he is repentant of his sin? What do you see? Do you notice that, yes, he confesses his guilt, not with a cup, Looking back to the episode with Joseph, he confesses his sin. But my, my, I think the more important question is before whom? Do you see who is in view here halfway through the verse? 
He's not confessing sin to Joseph, not confessing sin to his brothers as he did before. Look at it. It's all before God. It's in view of God. Isn't that amazing? You've been here for the sermon series. We have here this previously wicked, unrepentant group of men. Now they are freely confessing their sin in view of God himself. This is transformation, isn't it? This is change. And then the third element of it, though I will only very, very briefly mention it, I think there is here the appeal. Um, because I know, I know it can be difficult, can't it? Um, hence the reason that I promoted reading the portion of Scripture before you come to church. can be difficult if we've got a long section of Scripture, reading it together, following it. There's a lot of distractions. It could be hot and so forth. But you must have noticed this. You must have. You must have noted the, the huge section at the end of the chapter. Did you? There's this big section where Judah appeals to Joseph on Benjamin's behalf. Did everybody pick up on it? It's a big section of scripture there. Did you notice it? I would say, do you not find that in itself remarkable? Because you have been in Joseph for a long, long time. And you've seen a progression in Judah. But can you remember what Judah did? Do you remember that Judah was the very one who suggested selling Joseph in the first place? Look at him here. So Judah has gone from the one who suggests selling a favored son to the point where he is putting everything on the line in order to advocate for a favored son, Benjamin. I mean, are you not with me when I say these guys, these men are almost unrecognizable? I mean, God has taken and worked in their lives. Can you remember that they were murderers, some of them? Can you remember that they were, some of them, not just one, some of them adulterers, all of them, all of them cheats and liars. And by the grace of God, all the way through this chapter, what are you seeing? What is emphasized by God? But this new character, this noble character of these men, we want to bow down to God and, and worship him for this incredible transformation. But instead of that, in a sense, I, I, I really want to go back to what I said to you at the very start of this sermon, and maybe you cannot remember what it was, but I said to you that this chapter should be of great encouragement to you if you're a Christian, you remember? This should encourage you. Can you see why this should encourage you, this dramatic change? I think, in first place, this should give you hope for yourself, Christian friend. Because if you're anything like me, you've come through the doors this morning, sometimes really, perhaps today, with a heavy heart because of your sin. And you, you come in and you're weighed down by the lifestyle, by your life. And perhaps like me, you begin to lose sight of just what God is doing within your life. And then you come to God's word and this morning, in this place right now, what is God reminding you about? He is reminding you that right now, God is at work in your heart to change you. Right now, with all the circumstances that you're going through in your life, God is right now transforming you. So though I, okay, fair enough, the work of the Holy Spirit might seem imperceptible sometimes, I reassure you it is real. 
And that work of the Holy Spirit in your life will continue on until you won't just stand with a new noble character. There is a point such as the grace and work of God where you are going to stand Christ-like in perfection before the king. Doesn't it help us? Doesn't it encourage us? But then second of all, does this not encourage you for your witness to other people? Because again, if you're anything like me doing this whole minister confession thing, but it's true, if you're anything like me, you are too quick to write people off in your life. Do you do that? I do that. It's wrong. I look at some of the people in my family and some of the people that I love and my friends, and honestly, I find myself thinking they are unsavable. I think they are far too entrenched in their their unbelief. They're too set in their ways. They're never going to change. We write people off, and then we come to church, and then we come to God's word. And what has God done with these brothers? He has taken them from abject wickedness. And he alone has awoken their conscience to their sin. God alone has aligned them to the favored son. God alone has transformed them. And why? Ultimately, that he would take these men and use them in the service of his great name. Should that not give us all the encouragement for our witness? These people you're thinking about are not beyond the power of God because God's grace does something. What does it do? It transforms people. And then we close with our third thing. So we see testing of transformation. We see evidence that that transformation has has taken place. And then the third thing, uh, more briefly still, uh, is the cause of transformation. Um, I think you know what it's like. Uh, Sometimes we will read the Bible, a portion of the Bible, a chapter of the Bible, and if we're honest, with hindsight, we can see that we did not really appreciate the significance of the portion of Scripture that we had read. Has that ever happened to you? You know, you've read, you've skimmed over a portion of scripture and it's not only later on that you realize, oh, that was far more significant than I realized at the time. I do it. I'm sure you do it too. Well, I need you to think about Martin Luther King and I have a dream. And I need you to think about Churchill for a moment, whether you like to do that or not. You can think about Churchill, full flow Churchill. Because in this Judah coming to Joseph, interceding on behalf of Benjamin, I think there's more than perhaps we realize. I think we have to appreciate this is an amazing speech that he gives. Now, this is, did we realize, this is the longest speech in all of the book of Genesis. So God has given particular focus to this speech that Judah gives to Joseph. Is the longest speech in all of Genesis. It is also a speech of a particular eloquence, uh, of really of exquisite beauty. And I, I really love how uh, one commentator summed it up. Now listen to this. He says of this speech, he says, what we are looking at, you and I, at the end of Genesis 44, he says, this is, 
one of the most moving speeches in all of human history. That's a claim, isn't it? This is one of the most moving speeches in all of human history. So how can he say that? Can, can, can I maybe just point you to one or two things that, that would back that up? Because yes, this is carefully constructed. And maybe we just say, whoop de do is a carefully constructed speech. Oh, great. But he speaks with eloquence, Judah, to Joseph. And speaks with respect. But I want you to notice this. So if we could look at verse 20, please find verse 20. And I want you to notice how Judah has come to terms with the status of the favored son. Now, can, can you think back? What was the status of the favored son previously? Do you remember? Do you remember that that status of a favored son was the flashpoint? Do you remember that it was the status of the favored son that caused all of the problems? Do you remember Genesis 30 said they hated the fact that Joseph was the favored son? But look at it now. Do you see what it's become? The status of the favored son has gone, been from, gone from being the cause of the problems to now it is the basis for an appeal. So you've got to hear Judah and what he's saying. He's saying to Joseph, please release the favored son. Please release my brother because he is specially loved, because he is the beloved son. Do you see? Now, if that is not moving, this will be. Because I also want you to notice his incredible concern for his dad. His incredible concern for his dad. Because do we like statistics? I think we've established not many of us like maths. You'll like this statistic. In this speech, 16 times, Judah makes reference to his father. 16 times he points to his dad. And if you have been here for the last few weeks and months, You've got to find that remarkable. Because what has Judah been able to do? He has been happy to sell his brother and make a few quid, even if it breaks his dad's heart, even if it grieves his heart. But now it's so different. Now it's his love for his dad. And it's his concern that the father would not be grieved. That is the ultimate motivation that he has here for this appeal. And then the last thing, and I hope you begin to see why it's moving, but the last thing, you have to notice the offer in this speech. Did everybody get the movement? Certain preachers might get stick for moving about too much when they preach. Judah does it. Did you notice? He starts off in and amongst his brothers. But there's a point here where he takes a step forward. He was speaking as a representative of his brothers. But there's this point where he speaks on his own terms. And he's whispering into, into Joseph's ear. Look what he says. Look at verse 30. Judah, the Judah from Tamar. Judah, the Judah has sold his brother for a few quid. Look what he does. Do you see? 
he offers to trade places with Benjamin. Isn't that staggering? Isn't that mind-blowing? This Judah, so changed, is now offering to stand in in his brother's place. He is offering to become a substitute as long as this brother, as long as Benjamin will be set free. And surely, if you are a Christian in the room, surely the Holy Spirit takes you right now and drags you, pushes you to consider the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Because as you listen to the speech, as you read the speech, as you look at the, 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 the curves, the ups and downs of this chapter, what do you think about? What has Christ done? Yes, you would say to me, like here, there is intercession, wouldn't you? I'm speaking to you. Right now, what else is happening? Right now, in the heavenly places, Judah's greatest descendant, he stands to intercede, intercede to appeal on your behalf before his father. What do we love to sing? No, what are we going to sing in a minute? Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, who ever lives and pleads for me. Yeah, there is intercession, but isn't there more? Because what has there been for you, Christian friend? As you look at this chapter, what do you know in your heart? What has Christ done? There has been a work of substitution. Not just generally, but for you. Do you see what we have to do? We have to take Genesis 44 and we have to flick it on its head. Do you not see the inverse? Do you not see at Calvary what has been done? Rather than this way round, in the darkness of Golgotha, the favoured son. He has taken his brother's place. He has stood in for you and for me at the cross that his father be not grieved. The beloved son is not just offered, but he actually has acted a substitute. The lion from the tribe of Judah has become for you a substitutionary sacrificial lamb for us. For you, there has been substitution. And if you know that in your heart and you recognize it, you would agree, would you not, that it is to Christ that all praise is due, all honor is due. There is no transformation, none, apart from Jesus of Nazareth. But I close this sermon by asking, do you know him? Do you know the Lord Jesus Christ? Is he your Lord and Savior? If you had answered that earlier this week, earlier this month, and said, no, no, but you recognize and feel your sin, you feel your separation from God, and this morning you find yourself longing to be reconciled to God, you find yourself longing for this sort of heartfelt, deep-rooted transformation, I think you already know the answer. You need to come to Jesus Christ. This morning, you come to him. You repent of your sin. You pray to him. You trust in him. Put your faith in Jesus. And do you know what you'll become? A leopard.
a leopard whose spots have been changed. You will be transformed by the amazing grace of God. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray that you would give us hearts to receive your word, ears to hear your word. We thank you, Lord God, that though we cannot pull our socks up, we cannot turn over a new leaf to the extent that we know your salvation. We thank you that you have done everything for us. Lord God, we thank you that the line of the tribe of Judah has done everything that you have lived for us, died in our place as our substitute, and that you ever live to intercede. May it be that you, the Lord Jesus Christ, in all of our hearts, you receive all glory and praise. Amen.